right, here we go. It is podcast time coming to you from the Rove Hotel downtown Dubai. It's Doc Talk with Dr. Neil Galletly, and we are going to be talking about all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, Dr. Jenna will be just going, <sighs> because I, I love talking about gas. I love talking about anything to do with constipation. You know, generally anything to do with poop. I'm I'm rather enamored with those conversations, and she never wants to talk about those things. So, well, listen, you got you got the right person in the studio today. That's I'm all about poop and gas. How are you doing? By the way, I'm doing great. Thanks. Good to see you. I've been following you on Instagram, and you're you're killing it. I gotta say, your your 60 seconds or so pieces that are demystifying the world of gastroenterology. I'm loving them. I'm loving them. Well, I appreciate that. So now it's good. I'm just trying to like, you know, get the knowledge, get the information out there for people because I think there's a lot of questions. I, well, I'm, I'm curious. In When you think about the office, and you, you, by the way, you're at Health Bay. If people are wondering where they can find Dr. Neil, Health Bay, easy to look up. And you guys are on El Wasso Road. Parking is parking is a dream. Valet as well. I, there's there's valet. Ooh. I wouldn't say parking was a dream, but there is valet that will make your parking a dream. So yeah, that's they're, what you're building beside the 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 one area, aren't they? There's you got two sets of buildings over there. So actually, now there's three sets oh, three, of buildings okay. on El Wasso Road. Absolutely. So we've got the the day surgery, which is where you'll find me, which is uh, next to J3 Mall, the big okay. green thing on Wasso Road, and uh, then further along you've got the uh, the Verve Villa where a lot of the uh, other specialties are. And then there's a brand new shiny women's health uh, building, oh, an aesthetics okay. building, even further down, which is uh, which is a great place. And the team's expanding rapidly there. Oh, wonderful. So easy to find you. I, and as I said, you're on social media. Are your other colleagues uh, jumping on the social media bandwagon? Or is this something that you're leading, you're pioneering, leading the way over at Health Bank? So, you know, I think in healthcare, there's a lot of interest in that now, isn't there? So there's yeah. a lot of docs who are sort of got their Instagram channels and their <laughs> Facebook channels and so on, or doing their little TikTok videos. Now, if I could dance, James, I'd be doing my TikTok <laughs> videos as well. But as it is, I'm sitting here podcasting with you. <laughs> well, there we go. We, we might get a dance in after that. Yeah, we'll, see we'll, what we can do. well, let's jump right on in because, you know, gastroenterology, that is your specialty. You've been at this for over almost 25 years now. This is... This is incredible. I mean, you've got a whole bunch of experience, and we talked. It's almost been a year, I think, since you were you were on the show. Um, I think we did. Uh, we we did a really great session on liver. I think back in uh, around November or okay, so, and so then uh, yeah. yeah, okay, so not a year, half a year. Mm. Time flies. <laughs> I, I have trouble keeping track of it sometimes. <laughs> it, just give us the thumbnail sketch. What is gastroenterology when people say, I've got to go to my gastro doctor? What are we talking about? All right. So with gastroenterology, we're talking pretty much anything between that happens between the food pipe and then in the stomach, in the intestines, in those long wiggly bits in the middle, in the colon. But also not only are we talking about that, we also specialize in liver disease as well and also diseases of the pancreas. So it incorporates quite a lot. But basically, it's like if your food goes there or your poop goes there, we're all about it. That is a very wide area that you've got to deal with. Like, as you said, from, you know, ingesting to digesting to, you know, excreting. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a lot of areas. That's, uh, it's, it's, it's a feral length. If you, if you stretch it out, that's a feral length. Yeah. One of, one of the areas that I hear a lot of people talking about these days and it, you know, it's, it's, it, I don't know if it's the buzzword or if it's fashion, but people are talking about food intolerances and saying, oh, yeah, I've got this food intolerance. I've got that food intolerance. And then there's a litany of, well, this is what I'm doing for this and this is what I'm doing for that. And and sometimes people have gone to a doctor like yourself. Sometimes they haven't. Let's talk a little bit about food intolerance. Is this a growing thing in the office or is it just something that, you know, is ongoing? So, you know, it's Food intolerances have always been there, but I think there's increasing awareness of food intolerances. And, you know, it's it's a common question. People each week are coming to ask me, you know, Doc, should we be testing for food intolerances? Do I have a food intolerance? Do I have a food allergy? What's going on? I'm getting these symptoms whenever I eat. Why is it? 
So, yeah, no, food intolerance is certainly something that plays in a lot of people's mind, and it might be good to try and demystify that a little bit this morning. So, so what, what does it mean, food intolerance? I mean, I hear, I hear people say, oh, I'm lactose intolerant, and, you know, you've got other things like celiac disease that comes in. And, mm. and So what, what, are, what does this wild world of food intolerance actually entail? What is it already? So, listen, to begin with, let's start off with what it's not. Because I love there's this, often, what it's not. <laughs> there we go. because yeah. often there's uh, there's a lot of confusion in people's minds between food intolerances and food allergies, ah. and they are completely different beasts. Okay. Okay. So 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 food allergy. Mm. What what is a food allergy? So food allergy is where your immune system wrongly recognizes a component of the food that you eat as a threat, as an enemy. And so whenever your body, your gut is exposed to that threat, your immune system mobilizes itself to make a rapid inflammatory immune response to that. And that can be, you know, that can be potentially life-threatening. So inflammatory food response would mean, you know, closing up of the air pipe, those kind of things. Exactly. So typically with a food allergy, you get a response to even the tiniest amount of that food usually, and it will happen every time you take that food. So you would expect within seconds or minutes, you might expect swelling of the tongue, closing of the airways, wheezing, maybe a bit of a facial rash, maybe sweating, maybe a bit of uh, tummy pain and vomiting. So, you know, they can be serious symptoms. And like, they, like, like peanuts, peanut yeah, allergies, exactly. not allergies. Mm. Oh, okay. Exactly. So, yeah, and there, there, there are certain uh, foods that are more allergen, allergenic than, uh, than other foods. Peanuts and uh, other nuts are a, a common source, soy and egg and so on. So there's, a, there's quite a few foods that people have to be really careful with. And, you know, if you have allergies, it can be dangerous. It can be life-threatening. People may have to carry EpiPens around with them. And, um, yeah, so that's all immune-mediated. And that's what a food intolerance is not. Food intolerance <laughs> is, a, as I say, a completely yeah. different beast. Okay. So, do, do they do they ever piggyback on each other, or are they very? Do they identify and present very differently? So that's an interesting question. They 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 present very differently. I mean, if you're asking me, is it possible to for someone to have both? Then I guess that's true. But you kind of like you know you you you'd know about the allergy and you'd just be avoiding whatever it is completely so you wouldn't get to the point of finding out if you're intolerant to that food I, as well. I want to talk allergies just for a second. I sure. know this is not your opinion, mm. but. It, it seems to me food allergies, either we've become more aware of them or they've become more prevalent. And, and I'm saying, I, you know, I remember growing up in high school and, and going to grade school and it, it was very common for myself and, and, you know, 20 students around me to eat, be eating peanut butter and jam sandwiches and, you know, all sorts of the things that people now have allergies to. And I don't remember when I was going to, to grade school and high school, I don't remember people having nut allergies. I don't remember people having issues with that stuff. It, yet, somewhere along the line, it became a lot more common. And it started to, we started to identify it. Yeah, you know, I think it is becoming more common. I was having exactly that same conversation the other day, and we were saying, listen, at school, I don't remember that so, so much. So, you know, I think allergies are becoming more common, and I can't tell you the reason for that. Um, but also, again, awareness is becoming a lot more. And well, yeah. that's the other side. I wondered if people aren't just more aware and people were having mild reactions and and it, it just built up over time. Who knows? It's, I guess that's a whole area of study for, you know, one, one branch of the medical community is is looking at that so let's drop back to the intolerances so intolerances as you said to recap intolerances and allergies very different things absolutely yeah so with intolerances it's got nothing to do with the immune system so basically with intolerances what's happening is your body is finding it difficult to digest certain foods And when I say digest, I guess what I'm talking about is it's finding it difficult to break down maybe more complex um, foods into the simple molecules that can then get absorbed across the gut wall. So dairy is a common example. The uh, the, the, uh, sugar in milk, lactose, is basically, if you look at the uh, the chemical structure, it's a double sugar joined by by a chemical bond. And um, our gut's uh, secrete an enzyme 
called lactase that breaks down that bond and turns the lactose sugar into simpler sugars that our guts can then absorb because guts can't absorb lactose. So when you have dairy intolerance, when you have lactose intolerance, you're not making the same amount of that enzyme to break it down. So lactose is staying in the gut. Now, like I say, it's not getting absorbed. So instead, it passes further down the gut. It can uh, get fermented by bacteria further down the gut in the colon. And that fermentation process can produce gas. It can produce chemicals that can induce diarrhea. And those are often the typical symptoms of intolerances. People will start feeling gassy and bloated, maybe let's say half an hour or an hour after ingesting the food that they're intolerant to, they may get the runs, they may get a bit of crampy tummy pain and gas pain. And these are sort of the typical symptoms that you get with intolerances. So it's a real check, check, checklist. checklist. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and um, the other thing that kind of differentiates intolerances from allergies is with allergies, it's pretty much all or none. So even the tiniest bit of the culprit food, if you're exposed to it, you'll generate a reaction. With intolerances, you generally have a certain level that your gut can put up with, and only if you exceed that level of intake will you start getting symptoms. And so people often get a bit confused, and they say, well, sometimes I have this and I'm fine, but other times I have this and I, I get symptoms. And I think that's part of the reason you've sort of got this... Uh, Think of it as like kind of a bucket of water and you can sort of fill it up and, you know, while you're filling it up, you're not getting symptoms. But once it starts to overflow, that's when you're starting to get those intolerant symptoms, the bloating, the gas, the cramps, the, uh, the diarrhea. Do, do we get uh, with food intolerances, and I know you mentioned right off the bat, uh, what very particular intolerance, lactose intolerance, do we, do we tend to get our intolerances piggybacking on each other? So we might have lactose intolerance, we might have caffeine intolerance, we might see some food additive intolerances. Do we do they stack on each other and and build on each other to create more of a reaction per se or is that so it's not uncommon to be intolerant to um, a lot of foods and, and typically the foods we're intolerant to tend to be complex sugars foods that contain complex starches um and so things all that, the good stuff <clears throat> well yeah exactly it's, it's the, kind of or the stuff we <laughs> like to be snacking on and eating and has become more common in our diet well a bit but also you know it, it's things that you might think of as being pretty healthy so there's a lot of green vegetables there's a lot of fruits there's a lot of whole grains that you know you'd think well i'm you know making really great healthy food choices here and, and you are but a lot of these foods they've got quite complex starches in them that our guts struggle a little bit to to break down and so you know um so other things that people describe like chickpeas and hummus um a difficult um a lot of uh, legumes people may have problems with onions garlic um but yeah there's a whole bunch of kind of fruits of green leafy vegetables that you think wow that's that's going to be super healthy but your gut may struggle a little bit to break them down and they may cause more gassy bloaty uncomfortable symptoms in your tummy you know in a half an hour an hour or so after eating these things as we age go from young to old and our system changes and develops do we see food intolerances coming and going yeah i think we do i think as we get older possibly there's you know a more tendency for getting these things you know um when we're young um our, i'm going to go back to dairy intolerance here when we're young our bodies typically make plenty of lactase to help digest milk because when we're babies that's what we drink but as we get older um, it's sort of on an evolutionary scale, it's kind of not normal for adult animals still to be drinking milk. So, you know, if you're thinking evolutionary, well, you know, most adult animals don't have the need to be digesting milk, so their bodies wouldn't need to be wasting, uh, wa wasting nutrients to make this lactase. 
So in a way, it is 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 kind of unusual that uh, human adults are still drinking milk, eating dairy <laughs> products. But yeah, so as we as we get older, in a lot of people, the level of lactase goes down and goes down as goes down. So whereas when we were younger, we could probably tolerate dairy products pretty well, we find it much more of a struggle as we get older. So how do we, I mean, you outlined just a minute ago, chickpeas, legumes, some complex grains, and, you know, the, the list goes on and on, and, and we love our cheeses and our milks and our yogurts and, and et cetera. How do we, is it trial and error that we determine what we might have an intolerance to and why some people, not others? So trial, trial and error is a very good way of doing it. I mean, there are um, lists of uh, foods that everyone's body finds more difficult to digest than others, and these will typically be the sort of foods people get intolerant to. So there's something called the low FODMAP diet, um, which was a... I've uh, never heard of this diet. <laughs> there we go. Um, <laughs> I talk about it a lot in gastroenterology clinic. So, 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 so say the name again. A low FODMAP, that's F-O-D-M-A-P. Low FODMAP. Yeah, and, okay. and basically this was a diet that uh, was uh, developed by um, a dietitian in Australia um, that basically helps identify the sort of foods that um, are more likely con- to contain these complex sugars, these complex carbohydrates that um, the gut finds difficult to digest. Um, and uh, the dietitian found that, you know, people with intolerances, if, you know, you try, um, and also IBS, because there's a lot of this ties in with IBS. So sort of reducing uh, intake of these foods can uh, IBS, help. irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah, I beg your pardon for acronym, acronyming there. Yeah, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, where bloating is often one of the symptoms that uh, people will experience there. So we've got this diet. Yeah. Um, so that's um, so the the foods on this low FODMAP diet, the the, the 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 foods to avoid on this. These are typically the sort of foods that a lot of patients will find intolerances to. And like I say, you've got your milks on there, you've got your dairies on there. But not only that, you've got those legumes, you've got those grains, you've got those chickpeas, you've got those sort of fruits and vegetables that can be difficult to digest. When you look at this kind of list, I haven't looked at it, but mm. you've described it. I'm going, okay, hummus and things and, uh, you know, legumes and great. These are a lot of the food items that we eat on a regular basis. Mm. Is, is the question with intolerance, is it about moderation Absolutely. versus elimination? Yeah, no. So with allergies, it's got to be elimination. Yeah. It's, you know, it, 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 it's all or even the tiniest bit, all or none. Whereas with intolerances, it's generally about moderation. So, you know, if you're finding that after eating, you're getting a lot of gassy symptoms, you're getting a lot of bloaty symptoms, you're getting maybe diarrhea, you're getting tummy cramps, then often I'll suggest to patients, well, you know, listen, why don't we try having a look through these lists of the the difficult-to-digest foods, trying to identify the things that maybe you're having a lot of, and try reducing them a bit and seeing if that just helps reduce the formation of gas in the intestines, reduces those intolerance-type symptoms. When we talk about intolerance with digestion, are, are we seeing the food travel through the digestive system and then come out in our stool without being digested at all? Or is it partial digestion? How, how do we recognize that the food items aren't being digested? Is it? It's, it's more from the symptoms uh, okay. you experience. So it's, it's not from, from the gassing ex- and no. the bloating. And- yeah, you don't need to be examining your poop for this one. <laughs> Although I, I am a huge proponent of doing that. Just uh, I was listening to something the other day, and they were talking about as you age how fast things go through your system. So, you know, they were saying, well, eat, eat this, that, and the other thing because it doesn't digest so well. And then when you see it coming out, you know, oh, there we go. This is my transit time. Transit time they were talking about. And I said, well, that's an interesting thing. <laughs> and I wondered if I was the only person who was, uh, you know, experimenting with transit time. So, uh, gassing and bloating. And so gas, this is, this is an area that when we talk about intolerance, it's, it's just never clicked on for me that gas... And you know, you could be around a lot of people who might actually have intolerances where they have gas coming both ways. You know, they're burping, they're farting, 
and there it's it's a lot mm. is that a, a sure sign that possibly there's an intolerance somewhere in the diet well not so much i mean it's intolerances will certainly cause those symptoms but gas bloating they're such common symptoms well, this is the other and there's thing. like it's kind like of like you know <laughs> a list as long as your arm of potential causes for it and so you know one of the jobs when someone comes to see me with these symptoms is to figure out okay so you know what's causing this person's particular gas and bloating symptoms and it may be intolerances but you know it may be a bunch of other things as well okay but walk through bloating for me i know a lot of women talk about bloating mm. when they're in their menstrual cycle guys also experience bloating potentially especially with intolerances what what are, what does what does bloating look like feel like in that sense so bloating can either refer to sort of visible distension of the uh, abdomen or that sensation of kind of like stretching and fullness and maybe it's not necessarily quite so obvious visibly but ah, internally okay. it feels like things are getting kind of, of pressure uh, yeah exactly when when we we talk about intolerance and we talk about gas and bloating the, the first step a lot of people have is okay, i'm gonna head to the pharmacy i'm gonna get something for gas and bloating and be done with it and that's and it's it's over and i got this controlled is is that a, a good first step or should more conversation possibly be had if one notices this is a reoccurring scenario so, you know, for occasional issues, I think that sounds absolutely fine. And things that work well from the pharmacy, um, things like charcoal tablets can be really good. Simethicone, uh-huh. um, which is basically what we give to babies when they get trapped gas. So it's a really safe uh, ingredient. Uh, it helps just break down gas and get it out. So there's lots of products in the pharmacy containing simethicone that can help. One thing that I uh, have found particularly useful for patients are peppermint oil capsules as well. Peppermint oil. Yeah, peppermint oil. It's a natural relaxant for the gut and uh, can really help with gas pain and uh, and bloating. So it's something that I prescribe a lot to people who come and, uh, you know, see me in clinic with these sort of symptoms. So, yeah, going along to the pharmacy, if you're just getting this from time to time, getting one of these things, that's not a bad thing to do at all. But if you're noticing a persistent change, and, you know, I think this is true in any branch of medicine, if you're noticing a persistent change in what you're experiencing and what your body's doing, then it might be sensible to come and get a check. Do you have any sense of of what percentage of our populations generally have food intolerances? Is there a, is, is there any, you know, ballpark figure we can attach to this? Wow. Um, you know, I'm sure there are figures out there from the top of my head. I can't yeah. give you them, but I think it's pretty common. I think okay. you're looking at sort of 10, that's, 20, 30%, wow. something wow, that's, like that. That's a lot. Yeah, but it's, 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 it's like that iceberg, isn't it? That yeah. It's sort of like, um, you know, how much is the symptom, uh, are the symptoms causing an impact on, the, on, on each individual person? Yeah. So those with severe intolerances, it's going to be much less than that, but they're having particularly bad time with the symptoms. But I think sort of more low-grade intolerances are probably going to be much more common. And ultimately, it just comes down to having a reasonable diet. It does, yeah. And, you know, one thing to remember is intolerances are never dangerous. They're never going to be life-threatening. They can cause miserable symptoms, but they're not going to have a direct impact on your health. They're not going to have, you know, increase your chance of dying young or anything horrible like that. One thing I often notice from people who have food intolerances, you know, from A to Z, is when they finally identify it, And when they then take actions to mitigate it, they almost always talk about how much better they feel. And if only they had acted upon this much earlier. Mm. No, I think that's true. I think it's sort of quite often people just end up putting up with things, particularly if those symptoms haven't happened bang suddenly like that. If they've come on over a period of months and years, you kind of just recalibrate and adjust to it and adjust to it. And so then by removing the kind of trigger foods, the culprit foods, people can often, you know, feel, wow, you know, they come skipping into the consultation room next time. I, again, going back to the, the start though, and and the, this whole diet sounds to me to be something very interesting and, and something that I'm definitely going to go and, and take a look at the, just the number of foods that you can be intolerant to that are built into our commercial diet. I'm going to call it the commercial diet because it's, you know, some of it processed food, some of the things we eat when we go out just in general, it's, it's amazing how many intolerant trigger foods we just generally eat. 
Yeah, no, I think that's I I I think that's fair. But just by making often relatively simple changes to the diet, and this is you know often done in conjunction with a dietitian, because there's a lot of great dietitians out there who are experts in you know the sort of foods that people get intolerant to, who are experts in making changes, and then making sure that you still got a nutritionally well balanced diet, because that's really important. You know, if you start cutting out a whole bunch of things from your diet, you got to make sure you're still getting the right nutrients. So. You know, I will often encourage my patients who want to explore, you know, their intolerances and what they can do with their diet to change that, to work with one of our dietitians. That's a really great resource. And, you know, there's been really good research showing, you know, if a doctor just gives them a sheet and said, there we go, follow this, most of the time people won't do it. It's difficult to do, whereas working one-on-one with dietitians can be a really, really good way at, uh, you know, helping reduce the impact on the, uh, uh, of, of foods on those tummy symptoms they're suffering from. I, I think dietitians go completely underappreciated and their, their, their role in a partnership, especially with you and in, in what you're doing. I, I think in, in my experience, and again, maybe it's generational, dietitian sits kind of over on the side. We might go see a dietitian if we've had a specific issue or if we're trying to, you know, we just can't tackle this weight loss or, or things, oh, I might go see a dietitian. But otherwise, I always just think of a dietitian as, you know, a, an ancillary service that probably doesn't get a lot of knocking on the door. And it's, it's such a wrong impression. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, back when I was working in the UK, I would send many of my patients off to go and see a dietitian, work very, very closely with them. Now, that doesn't quite seem to be the same culture here in medicine in Dubai for working uh, for people seeing dietitians. Often there's a bit of pushback, certainly from the insurance companies, sadly. A lot of insurance companies aren't uh, wanting to pay for that. But, you know, what a dietitian can do is really, really useful in helping alleviate uh, gut symptoms, in help for, you know, patients play around with their diet a bit to find something that works for them. And I think you're absolutely right. I think sometimes there's a bit of a misconception that they'll just talk to them about healthy eating and yeah. doing lots of exercise. And, you know, <laughs> Give of course, me a sheet. We, yeah, yeah, we know all of that. <laughs> the food but, pyramid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but no, no, no. The role of the dietitians is way more than that. And they're a really, really, really useful resource, particularly when you're working in gastroenterology. I want to, you, you've opened a door. It's not in our notes. And, and we are going to come back to things that are in our notes as well. But one of when and I think you, you mentioned the word gut health mm. and probiotics and the never ending list of things that people are jumping on. Some cases really good, some cases hold on, you gotta think about that a little bit more. But this is this is this whole gut health is becoming so it's get it's getting a lot of attention mm. over the last five years. I think it's just astronomical increase in people wanting to find things to help have a, a better gut possibly because intolerances are becoming more more prevalent and they're they're looking at alternatives to to help sort it out what what are your thoughts in that whole area of probiotics and things how do you how do you look at that already so you know i think medical science we're still really scratching the surface of what there is to know about the role of the microbiome, you know, all these yeah. billions of good bacteria that live in our colons. And, you know, we know we know it's there. We know that having a well-balanced microbiome is important for all sorts of aspects of health, not just gut health, but it seems to have an impact on heart health, liver health, mental health. You know, there are all sorts of things that the microbiome does. But what we're really not good at at the moment and where there needs to be a lot of research is finding out, okay, so we know that there's a connection there, but how can we manipulate that what can we do to help improve all these aspects of our bodily health how can we you know help uh, supplement and promote the microbiome and you know at the moment we're at the stage of well let's give you probiotics let's give you some additional good bacteria to try and you know boost the diversity of the good bacteria in the gut and you know, I think there's, there's certainly roles for probiotics now I tell my patients listen then almost never a magic bullet you know they may do a tiny bit to help promote how you're feeling and you know help him improve things but they're never going to be a magic bullet having said that they're almost never dangerous so you know i'm, I'm very happy to prescribe courses of uh, probiotics for a month or so 
Um, I don't think you need to be continually taking probiotics month after month after month, but maybe a couple of times a year, it's helpful to uh, replenish the good, good bacteria, improve the diversity with maybe a month's course of probiotics. Well, one of the things that, that I notice, and I, I, I love that description you've just given of, of how we use probiotics and and you know, there's so much more to learn and the interrelationship of things. Yeah, I mean, as you talk about your, your biome, your gut biome and heart and liver and, and all your know, brain and, and all these relationships. What I want to back into just for a second is time. And when I start thinking about intolerances or we start thinking about, you know, gut health and diet change and, you know, maybe taking a probiotic periodically. All of these issues that we're dealing with don't resolve themselves fast. And, you know, you, you can resolve the bloating fast and you can resolve the diarrhea fast. You can resolve, you know, the, the trigger, the things that you're noticing fast. But the long-term resolution of what's going on, I've noticed it. It, and as I've been doing some reading, it, it's time that it takes for your whole system, it, it appears, to reset and to take on these new things that you're doing to help mitigate the challenges of going back to food intolerances. Am I reading that correctly? No, I think that's fair. I think, you know, time, well, yeah, as, as we say, is the great healer. And honestly, it is. It's, uh, and, you know, in this modern, fast-paced lifestyle, and particularly here in Dubai, I guess, you know, people want a solution Ooh. now, I think everywhere. yesterday. I think everywhere. Yeah, I guess what, that's probably what's true. What's the pill I can <laughs> yeah. take? What can I do? Is there some treatment? Can you give me a shot? You know, I, I just, I think globally, we, we, and I think it comes back to our social medias. We just want everything instantly. And if I can't get it instantly, I'm going to go find another doctor who can give it to me instantly. And it's like, it doesn't matter which doctor you go to. Long-term resolution, things are going to work, but you need to change things. And I think... And that's it. You know, I think a lot of, you know, dealing with patients, it's about forming that relationship so you can work. So, you know, sort of in the longer term to try and keep things resolved. It's not about coming for one or two visits and then expecting a quick fix. There are a few things we can do that for, and that's great. But there's a lot of things that take time to gradually work, work, work to improve things over time. Yeah. And, and sometimes trial and error, I guess, you know, does, does this work? Does that work? Do we... we tweak this tweak that yeah in all honesty that's absolutely true people may want to think that you know doctors we always know the right answer right away and but no in all honesty there is a fair bit of trial and error but it's you know taking the patient's history listening carefully to the patient and then working out what our best guess of the thing that will work is and if that doesn't work what the next thing is and that's what medicine's all about yeah you you threw something else up when we were talking about hey what are we going to talk about and h pylori did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, you pronounced that pretty I, good. I was reading about this uh, and you know, a type of bacteria that infects the stomach and more. And I, I, I went, have I heard of this? And I thought, okay, I think I, I think I have heard people talk about this, but it's not something people talk about a whole bunch. And when I started reading what some of the common causes of things are and how you know h pylori can be associated with it i kind of went wow this uh, you know a light went on and said why or why don't why don't we talk more about this stuff you want to walk us through what I'm talking about here? Yeah, sure. Listen, James, come and hang out in gastroenterology. <laughs> I think clinic, I need Because we, we talk about this stuff all the time. <laughs> all right. So, uh, yeah, so H. pylori or Helicobacter pylori is, um, is a bug. It's an infection. It's a bacteria that it's a little bit unusual in so much it likes an acidic environment. So it's really, really happy in the stomach because your stomach produces acid. It's an acidic environment that most bugs don't like it there, but H. pylori, it's evolved to love an acidic environment. So this is a bug that, it's a, and it's a really, really common bug. It's estimated that about 50%, so about half the world's population have this infection. So it's really, really common. It's way more common than I think a lot of people realize. And it's a bug that once it gets inside your stomach, it will in fact, it will live in the lining of your stomach. So it's, uh, it's a bug that we typically will pick up as children. I think the reasons for this are 
You know, our hand hygiene isn't great when we're kids. We stick our fingers in our mouths a lot when we're kids. Our immune system isn't so well developed for, uh, as when we're kids. So most people with this infection will have picked it up as a, uh, um, as a child. And this bug will typically live in the lining of the stomach for many, 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 many years um, and so, you know, if you have it discovered in your 40s or your 50s, people always look shocked when I tell them actually it's uh, probably been there, you know, ever since you were five or six. And is it just, it, it, is it it's something that lives in is dormant in, in a sense? So it's pretty slow growing and everyone who has this in the stomach will have gastritis, by which I mean they will have a degree of inflammation in the stomach lining. But it doesn't necessarily cause symptoms. So even though there's a bit of inflammation there, it may not be very severe and it may not cause a lot of symptoms. So most people with this infection, probably at least 80% of people with this infection won't know about it because they're not feeling anything, it's not causing any symptoms. How, how do we know if we've got the swelling of the stomach line gastritis? How do we, what are some, again, there's very early to very extreme. Uh, how does someone know if they're going down that path? So if it's not causing any symptoms, you don't, <laughs> unless you, you know, come along and, uh, and get tested for it. And we can talk a little bit about that in a second. Um, but sometimes it can start causing symptoms. It can ca- start causing a bit of um, discomfort in the top of the um, uh, abdomen after we eat or a bit of burning or sometimes a bit of nausea or also sometimes a bit of gassiness, a bit of burping and so on. It, cause, it can often cause pretty vague symptoms if it's uh, going to cause symptoms. It could, again, be something else. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But, you know, people come to me with these sort of symptoms. One of the first tests that I'll do is checking for H. pylori because A, it's common, and B, it's treatable. So if you treat it, you get rid of the infection, you get rid of the gastritis, and if that sorts the symptoms out, well, that's absolutely great. Um, But, you know, one thing I do want to say when we're talking about H. pylori, I have said that, you know, it's really common, that most people don't get much in the way of symptoms from it, but it's not an infection that you want. And the reason for this is, well, this long-term inflammation in the stomach lining going on year after year after year, it can cause a couple of problems. First of all, it can greatly increase your risk of getting ulcers in the stomach. So it greatly increases the risk of stomach ulcers. It can also, you know, this low-grade inflammation year after year after year, it can start damaging the cells in the lining of the stomach. And once these cells start getting damaged, they can start changing, and you can start getting precancerous or even cancerous changes. So H. pylori infection is a recognized risk factor for stomach cancer. Now, it's a common bug. The vast majority of people with H. pylori, of course, won't get stomach cancer, but a lot of people with stomach cancer, you'll find out, had H. pylori. All right. How how do you test for it? Is it just a common blood test? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. (laughs) So, okay. So you can do a blood test for checking for H. pylori, but it's not the best way of checking for it. And probably one of the reasons why it's not the best test is it won't tell you if you have an active infection. It won't tell you if you still have H. pylori infection. The blood test will tell you if your body has ever been exposed to H. pylori, but it won't tell you if it's still there or not. So most gastroenterologists would prefer to do tests of what we would call active infection, i.e. checks if the H. pylori is still there. And there's a couple of pretty simple things we can do. We can either do a poop test. So you can check for uh, antigens, for little proteins that the uh, bug sheds in the stool. So that's a really good way of doing it. Alternatively, you can check for it on a breath test. And that's a really a breath easy test. A breath test. A really easy thing to do. You come along to the clinic, you drink a slightly bitter liquid, and then a few minutes later, you blow out into a balloon. And basically, what they're testing for in the contents of the expired breath um, will tell us if you've got this H. pylori in your stomach or not. Huh. And when you're, anecdotally, when you're doing this, are you, you said that being 50% of people could have at some point had H. pylori. Is, is this something that you're finding pretty commonly? Yeah, we're finding it pretty commonly. I mean, remember, James, the people who come and yeah. see me in clinic are people who have tummy issues. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's a somewhat self-selected population. But yeah, 
what's the treatment? Already. So just going, uh, just just recapping a bit. Remember, this bug has been in, you know, if you're infected, chances are this bug's been in your stomach for many, many years. And as a result, it will have been exposed to every course of antibiotics <laughs> that you've ever taken during the course of your life up Imagine. until that point. I'm just thinking this is one resistant bug. Exactly. That's exactly where I was going with that. So H. pylori, we can treat it with antibiotics, but we can't just give, you know, one antibiotic for five days and go, yep, that's it, you're done. When you're treating it, you normally have to give a combination of two or three different antibiotics altogether. Wow. In addition to that, you typically have to give medicine to reduce the acidity in the stomach because the H. pylori becomes more active the less acidic the, uh, the, the stomach is. And antibiotics work better if the bug is actively growing and dividing. So you have to take two or three antibiotics. You have to take um, a, a medicine uh, to reduce the stomach acidity. Sometimes the regimes will incorporate a bismuth salt as well, which can help the antibiotics to work. And then just on the sort of the cherry on the cake, I will often give uh, probiotics as well during the course because there's some evidence that taking probiotics can reduce the antibiotic side effects. They can improve compliance and may help improve eradication. So basically, if you're treating it, you're taking quite a lot of tablets for somewhere between 10 to 14 days. Wow, that's long as well. It's a long course, yeah. So it's it, it's not an easy thing to treat. I mean, it's certainly treatable, but it's it, it's not just a five day course of a sing, uh, of a simple antibiotic. Now, even you know, you go through this uh, the, the, this ten to fourteen day course of the various antibiotics and so on. There is no regime that is a hundred percent effective. Even the best combination is about 90% effective. So it's always really, really important after you've taken a course of treatment for this bug that a few weeks later you do another breath test or another poop test to see if the treatment has been successful. Because it's it's not uncommon to see people in clinic who say, yeah, no, you know, three, four years ago I had H. pylori, but I took a course of antibiotics. And you'll test and the bug's still there. Now it's possible that they could have got a new infection although honestly that's actually pretty unlikely it's much more likely that it wasn't properly eradicated that first time around so it's really really important to check if you're taking the the, the antibiotics if you're taking the course of treatment really important to check that it's worked and well, the bug's well, gone once you've gotten rid of the bug you said it's unlikely for it yeah to it's, like it's, 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 it's pretty it's, unlikely um, is it just harder to get it again once you've eliminated it's, it it's harder to get it again um, your immune system's better, you'll have got a degree of resistance to it. So although it's not impossible to get it again, the chances are, I think they're somewhere around less than 1% per year wow. of getting reinfected. And, and as you were saying, there's a whole bunch of things that are kind of associated with peptic ulcers and, and other things. So Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's not a bug you want hanging around in your stomach, even if it's not causing much of the way of symptoms at a time. So, you know, if you have this bug, it's best to try and get rid of it. Okay, there we go. Colon Cancer Awareness Month. And this is, this is, this is I, I was doing some reading about colon cancer. And China and Japan uh, have the dubious honor of having some of the highest numbers of colon cancer. I think there might be stomach cancer, oh, okay. actually, James. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, maybe. I mean, the, the, the numbers are, are crazy. Um, when I when I started looking at things and and talking about colorectal cancer, if I got that stat wrong, it could be I didn't. It, I think so. I mean, sort of so the, the the stomach cancer goes back a little bit to that H. pylori conversation that we're having. So um, rates of stomach cancer in China, in East Asia, in Japan are very high. H. pylori infection rates in these countries have traditionally been very, very high. I used to work in China for a year or so uh, before moving to Dubai, and we'd see a lot of H. pylori. We'd see a lot of people with a history of stomach cancer. And the two things there are interconnected. Yeah, absolutely. So colorectal cancer it's, is not something we talk a lot about. 
it is not. And March is um, colorectal cancer awareness month. And it's a month where we try and promote those conversations about colorectal cancer or colon cancer or bowel cancer. You know, I guess in different parts of the world, we call it different things, but it's all the same thing. It's cancer affecting the large intestine, the colon, the bottom part of the digestive tract. And the reasons we need to be talking about it are, it's common. Right. So in and a, treatable. It, well, it's treatable. And you know what, James, it's not only treatable, it's potentially preventable as well. That's, even, that's, the, that's the word I, we want to hear, yeah, prevention. Exactly. You can prevent this from happening. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it, it's common. It's in a lot of countries, it's in the top three most common cancers. So, you know, a lot of people suffer from it. And sadly, it's also very much up there in one of the top three causes of cancer death. So it's a cancer that a lot of people are sadly dying from. And like any cancer, the longer it takes to find it, the longer it takes to diagnose it, the harder it is to treat, the more likely you are not to have a good outcome from it. Does... Do early stages, do we have symptoms that people are ignoring or it just doesn't manifest quickly? Why, why is it so high on the list? So when cancer is pretty advanced, you start noticing symptoms. You start noticing things like a change in the bowel habit, particularly maybe going to the toilet a bit more frequently or maybe the toilet being a bit softer. Now, you know, of course, from time to time, we all get a bit of diarrhea for a day or two days or something like that. So I'm talking about a persistent change. I'm talking about something that's been going on for a few weeks or so that you don't really have a good explanation for. So changes in bowel habit, it can cause bleeding, So this kind of big cancer can potentially cause bleeding. So you may see blood in the poop Um, and things like tummy pain, things like tiredness, things like unexplained weight loss. These are also potential symptoms. So yeah, big cancers can cause symptoms, but early cancers are less likely to be causing these things. If they are causing symptoms, maybe they'll be pretty you know, vague and there you may not notice them quite so much or they may not be causing symptoms at all. So that's the challenge is being able to find cancers early, maybe before they're really causing much in the way of symptoms so we can get great cure rates if we find them and treat them. What's the screening process? Already. So screening is all about finding these things early. And not only that, but as I'll talk about in a second, also preventing these things. Okay, so with screening, most countries recommend that from a certain age, it's sensible to either start having periodic checks on the colon with a colonoscopy or doing regular poop tests to see if there's hidden traces of blood in the stool. Now, for most countries, the cutoff, the, the age they start recommending doing this is at the age of 50. But over the last 10 years or so, we've been seeing increased incidence of colon cancer, of bowel cancer in younger people. We're seeing it a lot more in people in their 40s. And so because of this, about four years ago in the US, they changed their guidelines. They said, listen, we used to recommend you should start at 50. Now we're saying start at 45 because we're seeing cancer in this younger age group. So the guidelines in the US are 45 now. The guidelines here in the UAE have changed to follow suit, so it's also 45. So now we're saying, you know, we're starting having those conversations with patients at 45 about starting screening. Now, this is for people with no risk factors. This is for people with no family history of colon cancer and people with risk factors in people who's maybe their father or their, um, their brother or someone like that has had colon cancer. We want to be starting screening earlier than that. Oh, okay. Interesting. Very interesting. And, and again, something we want to be talking about. People need to be talking about this and recognizing that it is out there. You can screen for it and ultimately uh, prevent this. Absolutely. And let's talk about prevention because, you know, so far we've talked about screening to find early cancers. And so cancers that are much more curable and treatable. But let's talk about prevention. So, and this, in my mind, is one of the most important roles of screening. And this, in my mind, is why colonoscopy is the best screening test rather than doing the regular poop tests. So, 
most bowel cancers, most colon cancers, start life as a tiny polyp. Polyp is like a little wart-like growth or a little mushroom-like growth on the inside lining of the bowel, where the cells are just starting to divide a little bit more quickly than their neighbors. They're starting to grow a little bit more quickly than their neighbors. So they heap up into this little wart or mushroom-type appearance on the inside lining of the bowel. And we think over time, there is a chance in one of these polyps that it could, the cells can undergo more mutations, they can start dividing faster and faster, and that's how cancers form. And we think typically it takes about 10 years for a tiny polyp to potentially grow into a cancer. Wow. So that gives us a big window, a 10-year window to intervene. It means if we can look in someone's colon, if we can find polyps, and we can remove them because doing a colonoscopy, you can find polyps down to, you know, one or two millimeters in size. If you have a careful look, if you look for all the polyps, if you remove all the polyps during a colonoscopy, you can stop any of those polyps from having a future risk of growing and turning into a colon cancer. Ah. So like I say, that's how we can prevent colon cancer. We can not only find early cancers, but we can find these precancerous or potentially precancerous polyps we can remove these and we can stop you from having colon cancer in the future. Wow. So this, this, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's super important. It's, it's something we don't talk about enough because, you know, who goes to dinner parties and talks it's about a, colonoscopy uh, and no things one. like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just think because of, you know, the whole fact that of what it is, people just generally don't want to talk about that. It's not something you share with your friends, except if you're going and you've had the, you know, the, the what did you call the, the liquid that you drink, the dynamite juice? The, oh, the bowel prep, yeah. 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 The, you know, maybe someone will mention that, but otherwise no one's talking about the rest and it's something we need to talk about. It's, it's, it's a natural thing and we need to do our best to sort this out. No, it is. You know, it's, it is a really, really important screening program and, you know, anyone certainly above the age of 50, now probably over the age of 45, we need to be having those conversations with our friends, with our family, with our loved ones. We need to be encouraging them to go and get screened. It's not about, you know, you don't want to wait for symptoms. Once you start getting symptoms, things might be too late. You want to be, I'm feeling great. I'm 45 or I'm 50, I'm feeling great. Let me make sure I carry on feeling great for the next 10, 20 years. And by doing a colonoscopy, you can potentially save someone's life by either finding something early or even better, by finding something that you can remove to prevent problems in the future. And look, put it on your calendar. March, where you're listening right now, is Colon Cancer Awareness Month. So, so activate, get going. Neil, we got we got a shot off the show. It's this has been fantastic. I this I've really learned a lot. Thank you again. It's been a lot of fun talking <laughs> with you as always. We can find you on what? Do, how do we find you on your socials? Um, <laughs> Instagram. You're an Instagrammer. I'm I'm on Instagram, Dr. Neil Dubai. Um, check out my website again, drneildubai.com, and it's got all the links to my socials there. And there's a bunch of pages that helpfully demystify various gut-related issues that you may be having questions about. And during the day, we can also find you at Health Bay Poly Clinic right here in Dubai. You absolutely can. But definitely reach out on the socials and have that conversation. Neil, thank you very much for joining us. Like I say, it's been a pleasure. Look forward to doing it again real soon. My name is James Pikeway, and you're listening to Doc Talk, coming to you from the Rofo Hotel Podcast Studio. We'll do it all again really, really soon.